It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. I love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> and ever since they got past transitory, the Fed's plan has sort of come together. It takes time for it to flow through to the economy. And when I say that, really the job market, that takes time. We're committed to using our tools to put inflation on a sustainable downward trajectory to 2%. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. Based on their temperament and commitment to being productive members of society, I hereby pardon. I hereby pardon, yes. I hereby pardon chocolate and chips. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. So 50 basis points it shall be. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics with a final helping of economic data before Thanksgiving and minutes from the last Fed meeting that point to moderation. We'll speak with Bloomberg Economics Editor Michael McKee about the fight against inflation and what it means for holiday spending. Later, countdown to the runoff with more money piling into Georgia. The second woman to accuse Herschel Walker of pressuring her into having an abortion comes forward with new claims. We'll have the latest on the race. An analysis from our signature panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are here. And later, a special conversation with Christopher Brown, director of the newly reopened National Air and Space Museum in Washington. We head for a more expensive Thanksgiving dinner this year. Inflation remains arguably the biggest story in America, right? Supported by data out just today. And it, of course, takes on new meaning as we head for the holiday season when life is already more expensive. And so while backward looking, the Fed minutes released today were scrutinized for clues into future policy and whether the hikes already made are actually having any impact. And joining us to talk about it is Michael McKee, Bloomberg economics editor who's in town for the Fed release today. Michael, welcome back. (laughs) Lovely to be here. You quoted this morning on television, as I'm watching Bloomberg TV, you quoted the great John Hannibal Smith of the A-Team. I love it when a plan comes together. Yes. And of course, in this case, complete with soundtrack music, the Fed, Jay Powell, loves it when a plan comes together. What are you reading in the tea leaves here now that the minutes are up? Well, they asked me what the Fed is thankful for this Thanksgiving, and it's that their plan is coming together. They've been raising rates significantly, and inflation has started to come down. Unemployment has barely moved, and growth in the fourth quarter is picking up. The Atlanta Fed uh, GDP now has us at uh, 4.3%, mm-hmm. which is more than double what you would think would be uh, the trend. So it all looks good. 
at this point in time. I don't want to say it's going to last, uh, but uh, if you're Jay Powell, you, you know, you've got something to be thankful for. Uh, 50 basis points. We're done with the jumbo hikes. That's that's one part of what we That heard. was the conclusion in the minutes, and they were very uh, strong on that. They, yeah. they said uh, almost all uh, participants agreed that it was time to slow um, the pace of rate increases. They didn't put a number on it, but we've heard from them since that they're talking 50. Mm-hmm. So uh, I would expect that. 50 basis points. And then is there any potential for a slowdown next year if people start talking more about the lags and the possible recession? They did talk about uh, one of the reasons they wanted to slow things down was the lags. They don't know exactly when the full force of the tightening is going to hit the economy and how fast it's going to bring down inflation. Mm-hmm. And so if they move more slowly, they have more time to take a look around, see what's happening in the economy instead of raising, continuing to raise rates at like a 75 basis point uh, pace and having that end up being too fast and, yeah. and going too far. Well, so speaking of, I love it when a plan comes together. If you look at some of the data out this morning, consumer sentiment in particular declines. I guess it was less than expected, which is good, but still lower from the University of Michigan. 40% of consumers say inflation is eroding their buying power. And even higher income consumers were complaining to researchers here in the survey, saying that it was lowering their living standards. Yeah, I, I'm surprised the numbers aren't higher. Well, it was the worst. This is the apparently higher income consumers reporting worse personal finances than lower income consumers. Yeah. For only the second time in the survey's history. Is there a trend there that this <laughs> speaks to? Uh, what it tells you is what the Fed already knows, that people really hate inflation. And it's interesting because you will see with uh, higher unemployment that the wealthy don't lose their jobs. And so they're less concerned about that. But everybody gets hit by inflation. And so it is a major issue and it can get out of control as we saw mm-hmm. uh, in the 1970s and 80s. Now, there are a lot of people who say that's not going to happen again, that dynamics have changed a lot. But the idea that uh, interest rates uh, may have to go higher because people start uh, building inflation into their calculations is the bottom line of what mm-hmm. the Fed's afraid of. So that University of Michigan study today also showed that uh, people's inflation expectations uh, over five years had come down a little bit, uh, and uh, the current inflation expectations were about the same. Mm-hmm. So they seem to have that at the moment under control. It's Incredible when you consider the impact that energy prices has, have had on this whole conversation, oil and gas. Uh, we're looking at $3, from what I understand, $3.57 average today going into the Thanksgiving travel holiday, which was to the penny what we were paying on February 25th, the day after Russia invaded Ukraine. So when you go back to the 8th of March, when Joe Biden said this, I'm going to do everything I can to minimize Putin's price hike here at home. In coordination with our partners, we've already announced that we're releasing 60 million barrels the big of oil from our joint oil from reserves. The SPR. We're right back to where we were the day this thing started. So there is no more Putin price hike. Uh, at the moment, there is not. Uh, coming up on December 5th, Europe, in theory, stops buying Russian oil. Uh, in theory, that should have an impact on the price, but mm-hmm. we don't know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, Joe Biden gets credit for bringing down uh, gasoline prices because he's the president, uh, but it right. really is more market but yeah, forces. So tell our listeners, okay, so as opposed to the SPR releases, and of course we have to refill the SPR at some point here, these are global economic factors driving the price. Yeah, 
Uh, I mean, gasoline is a worldwide uh, commodity, and demand plays as much of a role in the price as it does for anything else. And demand fell during the COVID crisis, and it rose sharply immediately afterwards, which put pressure on refiners. Mm -hmm. Um, Oil didn't go away, but refiners had less capacity because they shut down during the pandemic, and they couldn't make as much gasoline out of the oil. And so they started running their refineries at higher capacity and bringing more gasoline to market. The price that everybody quotes when they're talking about oil is a futures price that traders, uh, people who who trade contracts for oil, Mm -hmm. actually, uh, they're betting on whether they go up or down. It's not what the oil companies are or the refiners are paying. They're, They're paying less than that. So they're able to bring down the price. And there's enough gasoline and oil now that people think we can make it through the winter, a time of less demand for gasoline. And China, with more COVID problems, is uh, demanding less gasoline. Mm -hmm. So it looks like um, a good bet for until China reopens. Until China reopens. That'll be a whole different interview. And we'll see what happens then. So we go into the new year here. I hope the holidays are lovely. We start the new year. And what trends are you looking for as Potential early indicators for a recession. Is it the housing market? What's the first to drop? Well, the housing market and autos are usually the first to drop because they're the most interest rate sensitive. The auto market has been so disrupted by the pandemic that it's hard to get a clean read on that Mm -hmm. because there were no cars available. Mm -hmm. So, of course, prices go up there. And the fact that you have to pay more to to buy a car became less important than the fact that there wasn't a car to buy. Now there's more inventory coming on. We'll see how that improves impacts people, that's going to be somewhat offset by this delayed demand that wasn't able to be filled. So you look at the housing market, and uh, markets work. They work to clear. And we've seen in the last couple of weeks, mortgage rates come down a little, even though the Fed's been raising rates, because they get too high and mm-hmm. nobody wants to buy a house. And the people whose business it is to sell a house are, are looking for ways to entice people in. But I think what you really want to watch is unemployment. That's what the Fed's going to be watching, mm-hmm. because if demand is slowing as they think it should, then companies aren't going to need as many workers to produce as much stuff since we're not buying as much. And you may see uh, the unemployment rate start to rise. Once again, it's confused by the pandemic because we had so many people who didn't come back into the labor force when the pandemic was over and companies started hiring that we don't know if companies want to let people go or not uh, because uh, they had such a hard time finding them. So what I'm looking for is whatever clues I can find because it's, it's going to be hard to untangle a lot of this stuff and figure out uh, where we're going. Absolutely. So it's possible possible to beat inflation without destroying the job market. It may be true this time that y- you can. Um, hmm. You know, you're going to see the unemployment rate go up a little bit, but the Fed thinks it's below where it should be anyway. So uh, how much damage is really going to be the question? Fascinating conversation with apologies to Hannibal. I love it when a plan comes together. I hope you have a great Thanksgiving. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, the A-Team, right here on Bloomberg Sound On, as you would expect. Not just Mike McKee, but the best panel in the business. We're going to turn this over to Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano coming up. And I hope, Michael, that you have a great Thanksgiving indeed. Thanks for being with us. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. 
We'll check traffic and markets for you on the way. And later this hour, we're going to bring you to Georgia to find out what's happening in the runoff here. Fresh numbers, the first real poll that we have seen in the race between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. And later on, we'll also have a special conversation with Christopher Brown, the Air and Space Museum's executive director, a former Top Gun pilot who just unlocked the doors. Open the doors after a massive renovation. Stay with us. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. So how do you feel about Chef Boyardee this Thanksgiving? Indeed, if you want to know how much it's going to cost, they do this story every year. The Farm Bureau is the, like the arbiter of Thanksgiving costs. The 37th annual survey by the Farm Bureau giving us a snapshot of the average cost of this year's classic Thanksgiving feast for 10, okay? Now imagine a world <laughs> in which these numbers apply to your table, but it's all about uh, the relativity here, correct? Uh, feast for 10, $64.05. That is a 20% increase from last year's average of $53.31. The biggest cost, of course, the turkey, that's $28.96, they say, for a 16-pound bird, up 21% from last year. So expensive that Senator Joni Ernst, the Republican uh, senator, part of the leadership, was compelled to go to the Senate floor with a massive prop, a massive can of Chef Boyardee to make a point. The chairman of the Democrats' Congressional Campaign Committee said families struggling with these rising prices should eat Chef Boyardee. That's what he said. We'll get to that in a minute. If that is yeah, the, the Democrats' solution. Is. Holds it up in front of the floor. Boy, are we cooked. Ah. Chef Boyardee? No. Chef, boy, are we cooked. Was that worth the trouble? She was responding, by the way, or referring to uh, Sean Patrick Maloney, who lost his reelection. Uh, the New York Democrat who referred to his own life experience when asked on Fox about inflation. Yeah, well, I grew up in a family where, you know, if the if the gas price went up, the food budget went down. So by this time of the week, we'd be eating Chef Boyardee if, if that budget wasn't going to change. Right. So that's what families have to do. That went viral. And it was twisted into him telling people, telling families to just have Chef Boyardee, which incidentally is the favorite of some. Let's go back to the good old days. Let's uh, assemble the panel. Rick Davis is back, and so is Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Rick, you're back stateside, so I say welcome and happy Thanksgiving in advance to both of you here. Inflation as a political issue, Rick, can last another year or so. How long before the Fed breaks the back of higher prices can Republicans hang this around Joe Biden's neck? 
Well, I think it'll depend upon how quickly they can, you know, get ahead of it. I mean, we've seen uh, these attempts at trying to rein in uh, inflation. Uh, you know, maybe there's some indications of uh, positive outcome right now, but that doesn't necessarily uh, last through the year. So uh, right now, it's, uh, you know, exactly what you were talking about earlier. It's for, foremost on everybody's mind. And until at which point in time other issues start to challenge that, this is going to be something that Republicans are going to talk a lot about. Yeah. They say the kids love the Chef Boyardee, Jeannie. They do. I don't know why everybody is picking on Chef Boyardee. I'm going to stand up for them right now, Joe Matthew. And, you know, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with a little Chef like Boyardee. A little yeah. beef uh, but look, this is it's getting to the point where it's a joke on the floor of the Senate. How long can that last when when Jay Powell is up to what he's doing? Obviously, we just had a long talk with Michael McKee about it. And there's a recession, a potential recession looming with prices that that could be looking a lot different a year from now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Republicans will keep it up. Um, the reality is it's going to depend an awful lot on how the Fed handles this. There's not an awful lot that the administration itself can do. And, you know, I, I was feeling very comforted listening all day to Mike McKee talk about, you know, the good news, and it seems to be good news. But then I looked back like a week or two, and you have many economists saying that the Fed has to be careful about not doing enough. And, in fact, looking back at history and saying there is a danger when the Fed doesn't do enough. Um, and so you know, very little danger when they do too much and to get down to where they say they want to be in terms of inflation at this 2% target. So, you know, I think the big question here is what does the Fed do? And, you know, Joni Ernst, when you're playing that, I'm thinking back to her commercial with the, what was it, the pigs, the wild hogs? That, that, oh, that This goes back, I, I'm you know, six years or so. But, you know, so she has the capacity to get some food on her uh, table without Chef well, listen, I guess this is this is why I wanted to bring this up. Uh, but look, uh, you know, in, in another year or so, of course, prices could be down for the wrong reason here, Rick. Uh, but you keep moving forward into the race for 2024. And we could be in a world in which the economy is staging a nice recovery. Could, could it be like the, the, the second term uh, that Ronald Reagan enjoyed? It, can can Joe Biden be that candidate if the economy comes back to life in time. Uh, he's got a long way to go before Reagan 84. Uh, morning I mean, in America. We're, we're holding our breath against morning in America at this point. Um, it's not going to no, be look, a landslide, obviously, like that. But in terms of his own uh, his own image. Yeah. No, look, I mean, he's going to I think a great deal of his image is going to rest on the success of an economic plan, because what comes after an unsuccessful uh, hemming in on inflation is going to be recession. And I still don't think there are that many people thinking we're not going to, you know, pass by a recession. And so mm -hmm. the question is, how deep and how long does that last? And I think that's going to define probably at least the next six to 12 months of his second half of his term. So, right. I, you know, I think, you know, getting too far ahead of everybody on, on you know, inflation running its course and, and avoiding a recession uh, I think Joe Biden's got a long way to go before people look at his administration as being anything other than less than successful. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, this day before Thanksgiving, they're here for the hour. We have a lot more to talk about as we tackle the race in Georgia coming up with some breaking news there today as Jane Doe emerges in front of cameras and microphones with new evidence against Herschel Walker. We'll check in on the runoff with the panel next. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. So it's the first big poll out since the general election, since the actual midterm election day before we even knew 
that Georgia was going to a runoff. It's from the AARP. And it does show Raphael Warnock, the Democratic senator, the incumbent, holding ahead of Republican Herschel Walker, but not by a lot. 51 to 47 percent, that of course would be within the margin of error here. And while it does look pretty good for Senator Warnock, when it comes to independent voters, the campaigning continues. Imagine somebody coming to your office and they want a job and they submit to you a resume and every single thing on the resume is a lie. Everything. And yet they want you to hire them for a job. Well, that's what Herschel Walker is doing. Then he said, to be a senator, you have to know some things. Well, what I do know is you haven't done a good job since you've been in Washington. <laughs> Let's reassemble the panel. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are here, our Bloomberg Politics contributors. What's going on in Georgia here, Rick, as we get closer to this race? And, and I'd love your reaction to these polling numbers. Is it going to become harder for Herschel Walker to get the turnout, or is Brian Kemp going to make the difference for him? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Brian Kemp is going to make the difference for him one way or another, right? I mean, you know, they were basically, uh, it was a very close election. I think Warnock only got about 35,000 more votes than Herschel Walker. So Mm -hmm. this was a close attempt at the first go round. It's just that nobody got to 51. Uh, Kemp himself got 200,000 votes that voted for him and did not vote for Herschel Walker. So when you look at that pool of potential, that if Kemp could turn out 50,000 of those votes, um, you know, for Walker, it's a game changer for this election. And from what I can tell, you know, my sources on the ground, uh, you know, uh, Kemp is all in. He's been campaigning. He's going to put an ad up right on Thanksgiving Day, endorsing Herschel Walker and going after Warnock and his voting record against uh, Joe Biden, who is not a popular president in Georgia. And and my understanding, too, is they know all this and the camp are in the camp folks are really trying to turn out in the districts that they did well. Mm-hmm. You know, some of those 200,000 votes that otherwise Herschel Walker didn't get. With all this said, Jeannie, does a four point lead count in this poll for Raphael Warnock? You know, it, it's within the margin. So I think we have to assume that so still a toss up. It's still a toss up. Um, this is one poll. It's it's by a reputable, uh, uh, you know, pollsters um, for the AARP, as you mentioned, but it's still within the margin. So we're still looking at the toss up. And while, you know, Walker has Kemp on his side, you also see Barack Obama going down for Warnock. And so that should get out the vote. And, you know, we have to also look at what we've seen just in the midterm a few weeks ago character matters and we have seen just in the last few days several questions about walker's character everything from this second woman who came forward with these claims of an abortion to the fact that we're learning just the last few hours that he's getting a tax break on a texas home that he listed as his primary Mm -hmm. residence in 2022 as a candidate for the georgia senate to the fact that he keeps making missteps and speaking publicly the latest one on fox which went viral and was quite funny but i won't even dare to repeat it because it's <laughs> not worry, appropriate it'll, it'll be the cold open on snl this weekend <laughs> we don't even need to do it what i am going to point you to is though this, this news conference in la today with gloria allred and whether this matters this is the second woman uh, to allege she was pressured into having an abortion by herschel walker goes as jane doe sitting right next to the the famous gloria allred who's who addresses the cameras and microphones holding a photo of Jane Doe and Herschel Walker together. Today we are here to challenge Herschel Walker to meet with our client, Jane Doe, the woman that he said recently he did not know, even though he had a romantic relationship with her for six 
years. Six years. She talks about the three flights of stairs he used to walk up to visit her in her apartment and then, of course, got emotional. He spoke about threats to me and the baby if I went through with the pregnancy. Quote, I want her to just go home. And he kept saying they would still find out and that they could, quote, have his heart, unquote, by threatening me and the baby. Reading from her personal diary, she brought unseen letters and audio recordings. Rick, uh, we've we've heard similar uh, about Herschel Walker. It didn't even move the numbers. In fact, some could argue that it helped him uh, somehow during the general election campaign. Is this going to matter in the runoff? You know, look, I I, I think we got to look at history and history. These these allegations and 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 discussions, not just with this Jane Doe, but an, an, another woman who had a relationship with Herschel Walker didn't seem to have an impact. Maybe it kept him at his, maybe his high is 47%. And maybe that's why, because, you know, a lot of voters in Georgia care about the abortion issue. It's clear that Democrats are going to prosecute the abortion issue, not just as it relates to his own personal life, but also his uh, stance on um, uh, abortion in general. But look, this is a guy who you know, people attacked his mental health. They attacked his domestic violence record. They attacked his thinking that he was a sheriff when he wasn't. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and, and so, you Doesn't know, matter. it's not like you haven't vetted this guy. And that's what's interesting about these kinds of elections. You've got two weeks to prosecute this. And what is new here? Um, not a lot. And so is that going to really make a difference in this election? What do you think about this latest turn, this latest update from Jane Doji? I think it's just another in a long line of questions about whether people in Georgia, voters who will get out another time in just a few weeks, think that Herschel Walker is qualified either personally or professionally to be a Georgia senator, to represent them in the U.S. Senate. And whether you're talking about this woman's allegations, the other woman's allegations, the constant misstatements, the you know statements on now his uh, tax records about where his primary residence is, those things all come into play. And of course, who's going to get out in this? And it's not going to decide the Senate leadership or the Senate who's in control. Mm-hmm. It's going to be the most interested in people who are paying attention. And that may make a difference here. And so I would still give the slight edge to Warnock, but it's going to be a battle to get out the vote from people who are exhausted by this. You know, I was thinking about Warnock's commercial. If we don't decide this in, in the midterm, we're going to have to spend, you know, Thanksgiving with Herschel yeah. Walker. Here we are. Here we here we are. So can we at least put this all down for Thanksgiving? I know we'll be back to it probably on Friday when everyone's punching each other at the Best Buy or the Walmart or whatever they do on Black Friday, if we still do that. But let's put it down for a day. And let me thank you, Jeannie. And let me thank you, Rick, for being the best panel in the business and always providing such wonderful analysis and companionship for all of our listeners going home. So cheers to you, too, and thank you. Cheers. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you, Joe. Absolutely. Bloomberg Politics contributors, they make our signature panel. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, and something special ahead. We're going to visit the National Air and Space Museum and talk to their new, relatively new director, Christopher Brown, a former Top Gun pilot, and he's in charge of re-imaging the whole thing. Half of it just reopened, and we get a sneak peek next. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. 
join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. So the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum on the National Mall has just reopened, having been totally shut down for massive renovations for months. About half the job is done now with new exhibits and an emphasis on diverse voices that have helped to advance air and space exploration. I was lucky to sit down with Christopher Brown, the Air and Space Museum's executive director, a former Top Gun pilot, former director of Dulles Airport and Reagan National Airport here in Washington, D.C. to learn more about the project and get an up-close look at the job underway. Well, I think the bigger task, quite frankly, is re-envisioning this national treasure for the future. I mean, it's, we know its impact. You've just said it, it, it's influenced you. I came here in 1977, a year after its opening. I was 19 years old, and I, I was really struck by the DC-3 above us. Yeah because that was an aircraft I had flown in as a small child. And so I made that connection and that, that led to my professional life in aviation. So we know the power of the place. Not as scary as landing at night on a ship, but uh, very, very important. The level of stress might be approaching that. Uh, it's interesting to think that this wing has been closed since before COVID, 2018. You said when it reopened recently, the real measure of success will be when visitors return home and say, you must see this. Is that already happening? Absolutely. We're getting about 5,000 visitors a day, and we've had really good feedback, both through the media and through our visitors. And I think part of it is because it's 40, almost 50% of the artifacts in the uh, museum today are here for the first time. And we're able to expand the storytelling in a way that the other measure of success is we, we hope that everybody coming into this museum, however they present, whatever they look like, wherever they come from, they will be able to see themselves in the stories and the artifacts, just as I did in 1977. It's not lost on me that one of the big talkers here is this X-Wing fighter from the Star Wars movies. Obviously, it is not an operational aircraft or, or a piece of history the way some of these other exhibits are. But it speaks to the vision that you have in connecting fantasy with innovation. What's that lesson for young people? Well, it starts with an idea and that there's that moment of inspiration and it can come any number of ways. So for instance, if you go into our Destination Moon Gallery where we tell the story of Apollo, you'll see games and some of the things that the young astronauts were influenced by as children. So we know the iconic value or the influential value of these artifacts. and. Uh, I've taken some heat for the X-Wings. People said it's never flown. It's why is it right. near in Space Museum? And I, I remind folks, I said, well, we have 6,000 paintings that never flew. So it's really a question of meeting our audiences where they are. What is it that connects to them, that resonates? And we know that the power of the X-Wing fighter does that for a lot of our audience. Well, you've got a lot of competition for eyeballs and, and interest, right? You've, you're trying to appeal to kids who are on TikTok and social media and have the attention span of a 10 second video. So I'm guessing this actually helps to bridge that divide. It does, and I think that what we really hold dear at the Smithsonian and, and certainly here at this museum is a commitment to authenticity and accuracy so that when you come here, whether it's in person or virtually, 
this is the real deal. And so sometimes some of the other media and influencers in our lives can't lay that claim. And so it's really important that we hold to that because it's not just the artifacts and, the re and how real they are and authentic. It's the stories, the people's stories behind them. There are amazing stories uh, all around us, including that of the Apollo mission. The Apollo 11 uh, capsule is something that reminds us of the harsh environment that is space. As you and I sit here, an Orion space capsule is orbiting the moon. How much do current events drive your vision for the museum? Well, very much so. I mean, very, folks often think of museums having a retrospective look. And so it begs the question, why, is a, why do we have a gallery dedicated to the Apollo missions? What's its relevance? The why? And other than the fact that it was just an amazing story, you know, the, the president just a few months ago, I think, used the term moonshot. So what does moonshot mean to a generation today that was not alive during Apollo? Most of the people coming into that gallery today will not have been alive to see the launches of the Saturn Vs and, and the Apollo era. And I think the relevance and the reason we tell that Apollo story really gets down to four elements. One is, you know, to take on a big challenge and to solve problems, you need a strong vision. Certainly Kennedy articulated that. You need a commitment of national resource, 400,000 Americans, millions of dollars working on that project. You need a tolerance for risk. You have to be willing to take chances. And then you have to have that human ingenuity that I think is often underestimated. And when you put those things together, what the Apollo missions demonstrated is you can do incredible things. So fast forward, how does that play out with climate change and curing cancer and some of these seemingly intractable problems? I walk through that gallery and say, no, we can solve problems. A seven-year project, I believe, in total? Yes. Uh, this is a huge undertaking. Does it have a price tag? It does. This is an investment both by the citizens of this country. Uh, their taxes have paid for $729 million of rebuilding this building. But importantly, the actual galleries, the look and feel like this gallery is financed privately and through our corporate and individual uh, benefactors. I'm compelled by your personal story, your career. 315 traps, more than 1,500 hours flying the F-14 Tomcat, this iconic fighter plane. You went on to be the manager of Dulles Airport, Reagan National Airport, the director here at the Air and Space Museum. But you've said in conversations that in flight school, you experienced something called, I believe it's a flight down. Oh yeah, absolutely. That you actually failed the equivalent of a certain exercise that you needed to pass in your training. I just wonder how much that influenced your approach to your career or your trajectory after that? Well, it's very humbling to be told that you failed in something you've worked hard at. Mm -hmm. But I think what it does is it's a real test of character to decide, you know, how invested are you in what it is you're doing? And just with exploration, with Apollo, with all these stories, there was failure along the way. And you learn from your failures. Now, it's, it's always important not to repeat the failures, but to learn from them. But to think that we're going to do incredible things, either at a level like this museum, land a person on the moon, or in my case, learn to fly an aircraft on and off a carrier, failure is part of that process. Big thanks to Christopher Brown, director of the Air and Space Museum here in Washington, which you must see now that it's beginning to reopen. 
And on this day before the holiday, with National Thanksgiving turkeys, chocolate and chip having been pardoned by President Biden, we remember the White House tradition that dates back to President John Kennedy, the great turkey pardon. You know, as a University of Delaware man, I'm partial to blue hens. But today we're going to talk turkey. This turkey represents America's 45 million turkeys who will begin making their uh, irreplaceable contribution to our Thanksgiving celebration. So take it easy, turkey. We're just here to serve you. Our guest of honor looks a little nervous. Nobody's told him yet that I'm going to give him a pardon. I know some folks think this tradition is a little silly. Uh, I do not disagree. Uh, I've got to listen to my critics uh, say I'm often too soft on turkeys. I am pleased to announce that today's lucky bird and guest of honor is named Peas, along with his alternate named Carrots. The children will understand that. Who better help celebrate the holiday in which they break the bread for two turkeys named peanut butter and jelly. This turkey is going to be called Flyer. And the backup bird's name is Fryer. This year's lucky bird, corn, and just in case we needed him, Cobb. This year's national turkey goes by the name of Apple. And his feathered understudy is appropriately named Cider. Even though peas and carrots have received a presidential pardon, I have warned them that House Democrats are likely to issue them both subpoenas. He is Totus, the turkey of the United States. Folks, turkey is infrastructure. Peanut butter and jelly are going to help build back the butterball as we move along. Thanksgiving is a special day for turkeys, I guess, probably for the most part, not a very good one when you think about it. The first turkey to dodge the White House dinner table received unofficial clemency when President Abraham Lincoln's son, Tad, begged his father to spare his new friend. His son, Tad, grew so attached to the turkey that he named him Jack, and President Lincoln had no choice but to give Jack the full run of the White House. Jack was here, actually, for some monumental events. On Election Day in 1864, when Mr. Lincoln was running for re-election, a special polling place was actually set up right here on the grounds of the White House so that the soldiers could vote. Well, Jack the turkey actually strutted in front of some of the would-be voters and broke in line. Lincoln asked his son, why is your turkey at the polls? Does he vote? Without hesitation, Tad said, he's not old enough yet. Tomorrow, 45 million turkeys will make the ultimate sacrifice for America's feast. But not this one. I'm granting this turkey a permanent reprieve. After many years in the coop, he's on his way to a farm in Virginia to bask in the sun, collect his hard-earned pension, enjoy his golden years. And that's one less turkey in Washington. Happy Thanksgiving. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, 
data-powered transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio.